0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Patrick Henry Podcast, where we hold the Western elite's feet to the fire and look at actually what's going on in the world. Today's a great one. The EU's elite is living on borrowed time. And uh, let's just say this, um, and this gets a laugh line in my speaking. Um, Betting against the European Union in my adult life in terms of political risk has never hurt my prognostication career. Betting against Europe has always been a winner, Because the EU has this very odd way of thinking. And people who support the European Union, it's more of a religion and less of a thinking man's game. And I'll give you an example. When things go right in the European Union, when they master some issue, it's very rare this occurs. But when things go right, they say this is a sign of our movement to becoming a superpower. When things go wrong in the European Union, they say well, things have gone wrong, and because they've gone wrong, we're now going to, as in those risable words of former Chancellor Angela Merkel, who, along with Barack Obama, is the most overrated person of the 21st century, they say instead, because things have gone wrong, we're now going to do our homework, and everything will be fine. Okay, now let's think of the analytical thinking here of this, of this doomsday cult. When we succeed, we succeed, and when we fail, we succeed. And they wonder that the facts no longer live up to this. So betting against them time after time after time hasn't hurt my political risk career in the least. And I'm not betting against them out of happiness. I live here. I want Europe to succeed. I'm not afraid of Europe challenging the United States for superpower um, success. I'm worried about Europe disintegrating into not even being a great power, generally being an ally and not being able to do much of anything. When I play war games, I just got back From a great war game played with Credit Agricole, our friends in New York, um, and the EU table, basically dealing with China and issues of Taiwan and Ukraine, could do almost nothing. And that's because it has a sclerotic economy, uh, no foreign policy direction or agreement, and no army to speak of. If you don't have an army, if you don't have a foreign policy, and if you don't have a thriving economy, there are limits to what you can do. And this has been true for Europe, not now, but for a generation. All you have to do is be able to read numbers and not be a cheerleader. And I've been able to do that. And so I say this out of great frustration. I want the EU to do better, but there's no sign in my adult life of this being the case. And before we begin about the EU's elite, every society that's ever existed has had an elite, and they have certain maddening qualities in common. All elites are self-regarding and think they're wonderful. This is true since time began. All elites guard their prerogatives jealously, not letting the upper middle class, often aspirational, into their circles if they can help it at all and play dirty pool to keep it that way. And all elites are to some degree or another corrupt, take more than they ought to. The The question isn't, are elites maddening? The question is, do they also do something for society? All these things were true of Franklin Roosevelt's elite, but Roosevelt got us through in the United States, the Depression, and won World War II. Okay, I'll put up with a certain amount of nonsense, a certain amount of arrogance from that elite because it did things. It did historical things that benefited the world. And if that's the case, I'll put up with it. The next generation, the post war generation, people like Jack Kennedy, Dwight Eisenhower, and to Richard Nixon, they also, despite their many flaws, got us through the Cuban Missile Crisis and won us the Cold War and ushered in an era of prosperity that the West had never known before. So I'll put up with a certain amount of self-regarding nonsense, a minimum amount of corruption, a minimum amount of them guarding their prerogatives because they did things. Well, let's look at the Western elite over the last generation. They were wrong about Iraq. They were wrong about Afghanistan. While they obsessed about a global war on terror, they entirely missed the coming of of peer superpower competitor China. They certainly missed the global financial crisis, which almost ruined the world economy. They missed the rise of populism um, and aided and abetted it. And they certainly got COVID wrong. This is not a record that, that stands up. And the maddening thing about them now is that they don't see that. What they care about are credentials, not what you do with the credentials, but that you have the credentials. And I could care less if you're president of Harvard, I care what you do with that credential. Do you stoke anti-Semitism? Do you stoke woke know nothingism, where people are chanting about the river and the sea, not knowing where the Jordan River is? Um, so you you train them into being left wing know nothing activists, or do you actually educate them? Is it my truth or is it truth you're looking for? And if it's not truth you're looking for, you're in trouble. And so for all these reasons. That woman, Claudine Gay, Dr. Gay, who runs Harvard, ought not to be running anything. I don't care what her title is. I care what she's done. And that's a very dangerous thing for me to say. I care. I don't care that there is an elite. I care that it's what it does. I don't care what your title is. I'm Dr. Halsman. It's what I've done with that title that matters. I don't care if you're a human being. It's what you do with that potential that matters. And the elite have totally lost this, particularly in Europe, where being a French technocrat is almost being a cartoon character. So let's look at the facts to back up what I'm saying and why the EU's elite is living on borrowed time. If there's one fact to take away from this entire podcast, I'm going to repeat it three times. It's so important. The next time they tell you how successful they are, merely respond this way. According to the IMF, already a bastion of the elite, the Eurozone economy has grown by a pathetic 6% in the last 15 years, whereas the American economy has grown 82%. They were roughly similar in size 15 years ago, and since that time, most of my working life, the Eurozone has grown at 6 the Americans at 82 Let me say it a third time so we underline it, and everyone goes away repeating this the next time you hear from some arrogant can't-be-fired French member of the European Commission for fill-in-the-blank, who makes $200,000 to do go to committee meetings. The EU eurozone has grown at 6% in 15 years, the United States at 82. Europe has become a museum, as notably a Chinese communist leader put it, and the United States has gone on to retain its superpower status. Of the 20 largest tech companies in the world, only two are European. Europeans don't foster innovation. Everyone knows they foster regulation and then try to force that regulation, which kills innovation onto the rest of the world with no one much paying attention. And that is the bottom line. Over a generation, 15 years, the EU's grown at 6%, the United States at 82. One has taken off, one is in a coma. That is why the EU elite is on borrowed time. It hasn't delivered on the fundamental job of providing economic opportunity for its for its people but recently things have gotten even worse for the eu and let, we're going to look at this in a bottom-up way i could go into 10 things but we want to keep this to the 20 minutes so i'm only going to mention three and then look at the political damage that the economic factor that i gave you has wrought and then these three other areas immigration the war in ukraine um, and green policies let's start with migration issues uh, this past year, uh, migration, it, the number of people wanting uh, c- applying for asylum in the EU is back up to just under a million, uh, which is 52% more than last year, and is the highest number since 2016, when Angela Merkel insanely said to a million Syrians, come on in, we'll make it happen. And the problem with migration and why it's fueling populism um, is that there's no assimilation. It's the dirty words not spoken about. You're taking in, in the EU, a bunch of people who don't really want to be here, certainly don't want to become good Europeans and adhere to European cultural and political norms. They want to take European benefits while remaining, whatever they are, from North Africa, the Middle East, wherever. They want to keep their culture, not assimilate, but take the advantages of the people who live here. As we used to say in, in the United States, our house, our rules. And, and I'll, this is an example I see constantly living in Milan and then flying back to New York. I stayed at a hotel in New York that was staffed by people who were obviously first-generation Americans, all of whom made mistakes at that hotel in Times Square, and all of whom corrected them and worked like crazy to make things better. These are people who wanted to be in the United States, wanted to join the United States, wanted to assimilate. And there are basic rules for assimilation in America. These are not political rules. They're cultural and social rules. The basic rule is that you as a first generation immigrant to the United States work like crazy for almost no money. And you're not going to get ahead. It takes time to assimilate. And that's never factored in. It takes a lot of time, a generation. So you work really hard picking grapes, working at a hotel, but... You join the club, your kids get into school, they learn to speak English, they learn the basic constitutional workings of the country, they win a lottery ticket, and then they have a chance to rise in the society. Every generation knows that it's been discriminated against, from the no Irish need apply signs on. But the next generation then has a chance to make it. And that's roughly how it works. And people sign up for this as America's a beacon. You can still see the energy and the hunger of immigration, of the people who want to migrate to the United States all the time, and that that does my heart good. You don't see that in Europe. The folks who come here have no intention of assimilating. When I used to go um, and lived in Germany in Kreuzberg, I would go get a croissant delicious from the corner Turkish bakery. The woman had lived in Germany for 35 years and still couldn't speak German. She had no intention of learning German. She didn't want to learn German. She wanted German benefits while remaining Turkish. This drives people who live in European countries, unlike their elite, who don't know any of these people, crazy. Crazy. Because what you're doing is taking in people who are not loyal to the polity that they're in. They are merely taking and not adding to it. They want the benefit, but they don't want to join the culture, and they certainly don't want to assimilate. Until Europe grasps this nettle, You're going to have a populist disconnect between the elite and populists who say migration isn't helping us get these extra jobs that Europeans so desperately need. It's creating a dependent class that wants benefits, doesn't want to work all that hard, wants benefits, and certainly doesn't want to join the society. And that's why there's been a giant problem Why Geert Wilders, after being around for a long time, shockingly, um, as someone who's, who's led the call against migration, particularly from the Muslim world. In his case, he's won a plurality of the votes in the Dutch election. I've lived in Holland. The Dutch are among the most tolerant people in the world. And for Wilders to win, you have to look at a generation of a lack of assimilation and the elite not caring about this issue at all. In fact, if you bring it up, you're somehow a racist. By not bringing up what is in front of the nose of every European, you're, you're, you're causing yourself the Dutch election. Second, there's Ukraine. Um, and Ukraine is important because I hear over and over again, well, the, the Europeans have given more money to the Ukrainians than the Americans. Well, let's think about this. They certainly haven't given more military wherewithal than the Americans. And if the United States Congress doesn't give, though I think in the end they'll give, the, give it to them, though I hope not, um, gives the Ukrainians the ridiculous $60 billion shopping list uh, without any conditions they're asking for. It's giving money, putting it in the bottomless hole of the most, one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Don't take my word for it. Take Transparency International's world word for it. Another of, of the elite establishment bastions. It, anyone who's ever been there, and I've tried to do business there and gave up because I didn't want to bribe anyone. Breaking the law, it's one of the most corrupt places on Earth. They're not winning the war, as we called early on. It's a stalemate. And you're going to, what, what $110 billion didn't do, another 60 is going to do, you're throwing bad money after good money. And if the Europeans have to step up, which is ludicrous, and fill the vacuum, they won't. Why? Well, let's go back to the three basic points. The Europeans don't have an army, and individually they're pathetically inept. They don't have a common foreign policy on Ukraine or anything else, Russia, etc. We have Viktor Orban trying to stop any further acknowledgement of letting the Ukrainians into the EU club or giving them any money, while we have other countries in favor of it with their people increasingly cooling on the idea. So they're all a manner of views about Ukraine, not a common foreign policy um, no, and, and no army to speak of. So you, you have nothing, you don't have an army, you don't have a foreign policy, you don't have a common political strategic geopolitical drive. If you don't have a common geopolitical view, You don't have an army. You don't have a common foreign policy. You don't have a common point of view. And that's why when Europe talks, it's Wizard of Oz. The man actually speaking, despite all the trappings of grandeur, is a a pipsqueak hiding behind a curtain. Everybody knows this. This is what drives me crazy about NATO. Uh, Frankly, and I've said this to German generals, my high school football team could take your army. The head of the German army just admitted that despite being one of the richest countries in the world, they couldn't defend themselves from Russia, which has a GDP the size of the state of Texas. This is not serious. These are lotus eaters who disarmed, taken the peace dividend, and, and subsidized their ridiculous spending uh, and social safety network and done it on the backs of the American taxpayer defending them. But the price you pay, if you have only carrots and you don't have sticks, is you better live in a world populated entirely by rabbits. And the problem is that Putin and Xi Jinping and even the United States and nationalists like Modi in India, none of us are are rabbits. And if you don't have a gun, you can't fight a tiger. Unilaterally disarming certainly made sense for a generation that Europe could continue to decadently live and support a safety net where teachers, and I, I know this from, from experience in the last Italian generation, have now been retired for longer than they were teaching. This is psychotic. But while they've run up their debt on the on this social network of work shyness living off the Americans, the bill is now coming due, meaning you aren't able to stand up to any outside forces. If NATO's going to work... The United States is going to have to leave more and more in the hands of the Europeans, uh, and populists in Europe don't want this. Certainly, after Ukraine is over, the Americans are assuming that the Europeans pick up the tab for reconstructing the Ukrainian economy, which is going to run into the tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. Really, Europe's going to pay for this and make a sacrifice? I've never known a European to make a sacrifice for anything, and if you aren't prepared to put blood and treasure on the line, then you don't have a policy. If you're not prepared to make sacrifices, and the only two in foreign policy are blood and treasure, if you're not prepared to do that, then it's just a mere—it's feeling good. It's not doing good. It's—it's it's virtue signaling. It's not having a foreign policy. And so this this iceberg in front of the Titanic of Ukraine looms in front of the Europeans who can neither fight the Russians if they had to, though they won't, nor can they reconstruct Ukraine without fueling populism further because they don't have a common foreign policy, they don't have a common geostrategic view, and they don't have an army. And all that is clear. And they don't want to spend the money. They don't want to make sacrifices for anything that gets in the way of their true religion, which is their lifestyle, as we all know. And then third, you see what green policies have done to fuel populism and discredit elites. There are a zillion examples. Just the two I'll give you are the gilets jaunes. When Macron tried to put in some of his green policies, there was a vast uprising of people, particularly who lived outside of Paris and, and you know needed their extra vehicle to get around out in the countryside. And one of the great comments of the modern world was made then when they asked one of the gilets jaunes what the difference was between them and the, and the arrogant Parisian elite, Remember, Paris is a, con- is a city where they call the rest of Paris Le paysans, the peasants, the countryside people, in, in derogatory terms. And this has been going on since the revolution, if not before. And when they asked the gilets jaunes what the difference was, they replied pithily, these people are worried about the end of the world, I'm worried about the end of the month. And this is the gigantic difference about the green cult. The idea that a few islands in in Micronesia are swallowed up is a theoretical abstraction to most people. Paying their mortgage is not. And while the elites worry about a global calamity that will never happen, the rest of us worry about making it through the month. This is another disconnect, along with migration, along with Ukraine. This is another disconnect between an elite and people on the ground who don't want to make sacrifices. They don't care about the end of the world, which won't happen. They don't care about esoteric problems. They care about the end of the month. And the gilets jaunes uh, plagued Macron's first term for this basic disconnect. And then we've seen it recently with Dutch farmers, that the government of Mark Rutte, that he had four governments, but he was the longest-serving Dutch leader, bastion of the center-right establishment. And they they agree, because of Timmermans, their golden boy, who had been the Dutch vice president for green issues in the EU. The Dutch then come back and accept these ridiculous nitrogen controls. Dutch farmers are among the most productive per hectare in the world. And suddenly they're not allowed to have nitrogen emissions, cows farting, etc. And without this, these farms would go under. And so there were a series of suicides for farmers who couldn't deal with it. And this led to a popular movement of farmers, the Farmers Party, which is now a major player in the Dutch Senate and ultimately the removal of the root of government. Because while you're ad- adopting these ridiculous standards from on high from the EU, a bunch of unelected technocrats that ruin practical farming, some of the best in the world, people aren't going to stand for it. They care about their economic imperatives, and until green issues and green policies make economic sense to average human beings, which they certainly do not, until this is the case, there will be a disconnect on this issue also, and we see the political correction in the fall of the Dutch government and the shock result um, where Wilders um, is the largest vote holder in in the parliament. So all this disconnect over migration, over Ukraine, over green policy, and a huge failure, again, economically, 6% growth in 15 years, flatline growth, while the U.S. grows at 82%, has led to political problems throughout Europe, rather predictably. Um, Even though Sanchez held on in Spain uh, by cutting a very cynical deal with a bunch of separatists, former terrorists, uh, I wouldn't say that government's long for this world, and instead you see the rise of of the establishment right, the People's Party, but also Vox, the far populist right um, in Spain. In France, things are more deadly. If there were an election today, Marine Le Pen could well be the president of France, that her party um, seems to be the one with the most Jews. She's ahead in the European Parliament election results and is ahead to be the next president of France. If that happens, game over. The old EU, as we know it, is dead. Also, the AFD rising in Germany, now the second largest party in Germany, the populist party of the right. Um, and in parts of eastern Germany, um, it's indeed the largest party. But it's second now to the center-right Christian Democrats, ahead of the SPD center-left, um, who are, of course, leading the government with Chancellor Schultz. Think of that. An SPD chancellor is losing the polls to the AFD. That's how bad things are in Italy. We have a populist government. We have Georgia Maloney rather skillfully running, despite all talk from the mainstream media to the contrary, rather skillfully running a government that retains its popularity here in Italy. And so they've already accepted populism in terms of a governing coalition. So if we look at the big country, and in Poland we had a populist government and now a return to the center-right, but the opposition are firmly populist. Not the left, but the populist right, the Kaczynski populist right. So across Europe, and particularly in core countries, France and Germany, we see the rise and rise of populism. This will continue until the EU elite, and again, let me stress my radical way, revolutionary, Jeffersonian way of looking at the world, until they do something right. They are an elite that, like all elites, is arrogant, self-regarding, guards its prerogatives jealously, and has more than its fair share of corruption. People would put up with that. If the economy were growing right, if there was a sane migration policy, if people agreed on what to do over Ukraine, and if people agreed that first we worry about the end of the month and then we worry about the end of the world. But until that happens, until they accomplish something, Europe is falling further and further behind the Indo-Pacific as we speak. The Indo-Pacific is the future. Europe is the past. My political risk firm spends 70% of its time studying the Indo-Pacific. Why? Well, we go where the action is. This is the region of the world with most of the world's future economic growth and most of its geopolitical risk. That's why we're there. Europe is a moribund museum, the sick man of the world, every year falling further and further behind relatively, not noticeably, but degrading, corroding constantly. In another generation, it will be an afterthought. It's already slipped off the list of great powers to being the least of the great powers. I would argue India is more important. Japan's more important. The Anglosphere countries are more important. Certainly the United States and China are more important. It's probably still more important than Russia, but that's about it. The reason for this is this elite has yet to do something successfully, and that's why the EU's elite is living on borrowed time. Hope you enjoyed this fun to yet again place my marker down against the European Union. Again, I do that with, with a certain amount of sorrow. I live here. I would like to make Europe work, but it's not. Until the EU's elite realize they need to stop worrying about the end of the world and worry more about their people in the end of the month and actually accomplish something, it will be continue to live on borrowed time and betting against them will be the easiest of political risk calls. Please do subscribe. So many of you have. We, we are incredibly grateful for that. Please do subscribe. And for those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're only asking $70 a year, $7 a month, or $70 a year. And that enables me to do three of these a week while I run my business, manage the book out there, and try to make the world a better place. So while I'm doing all that, please do give us the 70 so we can keep working with our community and give you the truth. Thanks a lot. Have a great day and see you at the weekend.